Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to Black Women Amplified, the podcast. Your host, Monica Wisdom Tyson, brings you downloadable conversations that matter to women around the globe. We discuss all things black girl magic, amplify our voices, and transform our challenges into triumphs. Monica calls on her league of extraordinary women to push our boundaries, share their expertise, and stories of personal transformation. Welcome your host of Black Women Amplified, Monica Wisdom Tyson. Hello, Black Women Amplified family. It is your girl, Monica Wisdom, and I am excited to be with you today. We have a great conversation with Miss Rachel Lauren. But before we get into that, I just want to say thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for joining us week after week and sharing it with your tribe. I am so happy that you're enjoying the conversations and the stories of these dynamic women that we bring to you week by week. This conversation is our final conversation of season two of the Black Women Amplified podcast. As I am gearing up for season three, I am happy to end on this note. I didn't realize that season two lasted for a year. (laughs) I don't know any show that lasts for a year, and so I was looking up dates. And I will say that as the podcast evolves, I really want you all, the listeners, to enter the chat. So let me tell you how this is rolling. The first season was about me sharing my stories. The second season is about me sharing the stories of amazing, phenomenal women, their journeys, their stories, all the things. In season three, I want you to enter the chat. What do I mean by that? I mean, I want to hear your questions, your comments, your stories, all the things, your insights. I want you to share them with me and send them to me at blackwomenamplified at gmail.com. And then if it's a great question and it fits in with the mood or the conversation, I'm going to answer your question. If you have an insight about a topic that we've covered, I want to hear it. And I'll share it here on the podcast. Of course, you will remain anonymous unless you don't mind your name being out there. But I think it's important because I think I mentioned it in previous podcast episode when I was studying for my certificate in women's entrepreneurship. I was doing research about black women because I was using black women amplified as a case study for my studies. And I realized that there was not a lot of information about black women out there. They don't study us. And it was frustrating. And then I came across this article in the Yale School of Medicine. And in this particular article, it stated that black women are not included in studies because of our weathering due to racism. And when I read that, first I had to look up and see what they meant by weathering. I was like, like chairs, like old, what are they talking about? And due to racism, we are aging quicker. We're getting illnesses faster than even Latino women. And so they just, you know, kind of like, well, no point in studying y'all. Y'all going to die anyway. I'm saying it much harsher. And I just say allegedly, but saying it much harsher than, the, of course, the grand Yale put out there. But it was really disturbing to me. And I said, how can I enter this conversation and really have people aware of what's going on? You know how you go to the doctor, you don't quite feel right. And you know how they say, oh, we're all the same. We're just skin and bones and blood. Well, apparently we're different. Apparently, biologically, there must be something different if they're not even dealing with the situation, 
There must be something different if they're not going to invest enough money in us to see what's going on with us. Something's going on. I don't know what it is. But if you want to read the article, just look up Yale School of Medicine and Black Women. I should, I need to print it out. Anyway, so I want to enter that conversation. I want to know what your experiences are, how you have been feeling, if you have any questions. And we're going to cover all the gamuts because I'm not necessarily going to talk about the article specifically because I'm not a doctor and I really don't know how to break it down. But what I do want to talk about is how we as Black women can really take self-care to the next level and how we can be aware of our environments and how it is impacting us. So just wanted to say all of that. My voice is hoarse because I've mentored a university on the East Coast and have a Black podcasting class. And they sent some follow-up questions and I answered them right before this. So now my voice is a little scratchy and hoarse. So hopefully it just sounds sexy. (laughs) Anyway, I have a dynamic guest on with me today. And she has taken her time to have this conversation with us about diversity, equity, and inclusion. She is a powerhouse in the game. So let me tell you a little bit about Rachel Lauren. Rachel Lauren is a powerhouse Afro-Latina woman who is making great strides to make the world a better place for everyone. As Chief People Officer of Dream.org, founded by Van Jones, and the co-founder of Diversified, she is using her influence to make impact for Black women in the workplace, while furthering the conversations of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Rachel Lauren as we talk about her journey as a DEI expert and her most important role of being a mom. Ladies and gentlemen, Rachel Lauren. Good morning, Miss Rachel. How are you today? I am good, Monica. Good morning. How are you? I am well. Thank you for joining the Black Women Amplified podcast. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. You have all the names. So Rachel Lauren Pierce Burnside. <laughs> You're like a lady on Dynasty. <laughs> Yeah, I just go by Rachel Lauren socially for that reason. (laughs) (laughs) How is Texas today? Hot. It is 106 degrees. Ooh. (laughs) And first day of school for most kids today. So. Oh, wow. Already? I guess so. I guess so. I don't have kids, so I'm always, people like, we're going back to school. I'm like, really? (laughs) Yeah. What happened to the September days? I know. So how are you and your new glow doing? Me and glow are good. (laughs) (laughs) This is awesome. Listen, there have been a lot of things going on since we began the conversations for this conversation. So I want to get into some of those things. But before that, I want to get into Miss Rachel Lauren and where you grew up and how you grew up and the village that raised you. So you're a Chicago girl. Born and raised Chicagoan. Absolutely. I have been in Texas for about seven years now, but I grew up in Chicago, went to high school there, and I went to um, University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, which is about two hours away from the city. Mm -hmm. So I'm Illinois through and through. (laughs) Very much so. My uncle was the first professor and first administrator of Chicago-Urbana. Really? Yes. Champaign-Urbana. Okay. My father was the first Black captain of the state of Illinois police. Oh, wow. That's yeah. amazing. So we have a lot of firsts in our, isn't that something being of this generation, 
Like we get to see first of everything. That's pretty amazing. How has being in Chicago or being from Chicago shaped the work that you do? You know, I tell people Chicago is a melting pot. It's interesting because you can go to so many different neighborhoods and find some of everything, right? You got Pilsen, which is where a lot of Mexican people live. You got Humboldt Park, which is where you'll find a lot of Puerto Rican people. My mother's Puerto Rican, so shout out to Humboldt Park. (laughs) You know, you can go to these different communities and they're built to really even favor or look like some of the original areas like Greektown or Chinatown. And so there's people from all over. I would say in some ways it is still a little segregated though, because you have these different neighborhoods. And and so while you can see all these people, I don't know that we're always all together, but I would say that like growing up in Chicago gave me an idea of culture, what culture is, you know, just the differences in, in people. And it helps me to appreciate those differences. In Chicago also, we'll show you a lot of socioeconomic changes and differences as well. So I think being able to grow up around that many different types of people, as well as being from a family that has a lot of diversity and really struggle to get to where we are, I feel like has shaped not only who I am, but how I see the world and the work I do. So tell us about your Latin roots. I know you're very proud to be an Afro-Latina. I am. My mother was born and raised in Puerto Rico, and she met my father in college. They went to school in Missouri. And the rest was oh, the Missouri girl, St. Louis girl. Oh, really? <laughs> they went to, I think the name has changed now, but they went to Central Missouri State. Yes. Yes. And so they met there, got married there, and the rest was history. My father passed a little bit over a year ago, but they had been married that entire time. And so growing up, I always tell people, majority of the family that I was around was my dad's family. My dad was originally from Gary, Indiana, which is right outside of Chicago. And I only had one Titi, one of my mom's sisters that lived in Chicago. The rest are kind of all, they were all over. But I always tell people around Christmas, we had Puerto Rican food. And at Thanksgiving, we had soul food. And to this day, if I don't have that, it don't feel right to me. Like, <laughs> I remember one year my mom took me to Florida to visit one of her sisters. And it was Thanksgiving. And she had arroz con gandules. And I was very upset because I wanted my greens and my yeah. <laughs> So, you know, both, I would say ethnicity was important for me. Ethnicity and race, as we know, are different, right? And so I think a lot of times people mistake race and ethnicity and don't realize you can be Black and be Puerto Rican Mm -hmm. (laughs) because race is a social construct based on physical appearances, right? So I have Puerto Rican family that racially could pass for white, and I have Puerto Rican family that cannot, right? (laughs) So. We come in all the colors, Black and Puerto Ricans. Right. (laughs) So talk to us about being a a conscious social influencer. What is that? And how did you choose that identity, I should say, social identity? Well, you know, I think social media, right, has created this wave of being able to influence individuals through these different outlets. And people have a choice in the outlet that they use, right? We see influencers in all different industries, for different topics. For me, I didn't want to use the platform that I've built up for anything that I felt like wasn't going to be impactful in the world. And so I'm very conscious about the things that I speak about, the things that I attach my name and brand to. And I know that a lot of the people that follow me, follow me to hear about, you know, things in in the different areas that I highlight 
that they can get involved in or almost for news for some people. I'm very uh, much an activist, both for all things Black life as well as foster care and adoption. My children are adopted and I adopted them through foster care. So, you know, there's just certain things I'm willing to advocate for and use my influence for and some that I'm not. And I think social media has created this way where people will influence for anything that might make them a dollar. Right. And that's not what I wanted it for. So what are the values that drive your passion for social justice? The values. So I would say, honestly, my experiences, the things that I've seen personally have driven me to kind of this place. Just being a Black woman in this country alone, right, shows you all of the injustices and the systemic inequalities that we face. And so I would say that that personal passion and fight made me really look into the so many different areas, right, that affect and impact us as Black people and Black women. I would also say, you know, my career is in people. It's diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm a chief people officer, so I'm in HR. And I would say that the things that I do all tie back to people and humanity. And all I want is to be able to say that I've contributed to this world in some way and made it a better place for me and my children, specifically those that look like me, because mm-hmm. there's just so many things that are against us. And so I just, it took time for me to really see how deeply rooted our injustices are. And I'm still uncovering, right? And so I would say... <laughs> I would say that's where it comes from. It's like, I can't believe how we've been set up in this country and something has to give. Isn't it? You can't, It's like we dig and we dig and we hope that there's going to be a bottom, but then there's another layer. <laughs> You're like, Literally. well, where did this come from? Exactly. Social justice being such a broad term. How did you decide to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion specifically? Again, being a Black woman. What I realized is there are so many injustices, but what I teach even in DEI practice is that race, unfortunately, is the first step. At the end of the day, there are so many things that make us different that also can become biases, that can become stereotypes, right? But if I'm a Black woman and I'm a white woman, being a woman is something that we have in common. And so there are things in society that we have to face just as women. But guess what? That race is going to be an outlier that changes the game. It's the same thing in the LGBTQIA plus community. If you're a black gay man and a white gay man, life looks different for you based on race. Not saying that there aren't injustices for that community, specifically LGBTQIA plus, but guess what? Race changes it again. It's just the one thing that I feel like if we don't talk about that and we don't go there first, we can't even focus on the others right? Like there is no equity without bringing race to the table. I often say, if you fix all the problems for Black women, all the problems will be fixed (laughs) because everything falls on us. (laughs) It's true. It's so true. You know, I would say that DEI work for me still came honestly from that personal place of my own experiences, but for my people, through the eyes of my people and realizing this is just another way to try to make it a difference and make some changes for us. It doesn't mean that I don't recognize that there are other injustices and that I am not vocal about those. It's just that, like you said, if we can go here first, then guess what? Some of that other stuff is going to be solved, but we can't get to it yet. And so I'm able to use my professional career to assist with something I would do for free anyway, right? The community work that I would do for free. My professional career allows me to do both. 
So in speaking on that, a lot of um, Black women, we volunteer our services. (laughs) And you said, I'm going to make it reciprocal because I have a family to raise. I have a life to live. I have dreams and aspirations on my own. Talk to us about the decision to make this a career as opposed to volunteering for an organization. Not that we don't need both. Yeah. But we need both and. But what you just said is that's exactly the story. Mm -hmm. It's that what I realized, I started off in in hospitality. I was in hospitality. I went into tech. So I was in tech and sales, did a lot with like food and beverage and technology. And guess what? DEI was my side desk job for Mm -hmm. free. And it was either because they had something organized that I raised my hand to be a part of, or they didn't. And I realized the only way to get certain things done within the organization was to say, we need this. I always had this interest of policy and procedure and treatment and a realization that I was tokenized in so many settings in so many organizations. And so my way of trying to fix things for others was to say, hey, this isn't right. I'm raising my hand. Right. And then I realized exactly what you're saying. Why am I doing this for free? Because not only is it necessary, but like I am doing a job and I'm doing another job and I'm not getting compensated for it. And guess what? These organizations actually find what I'm doing to be important and they know that they're getting free labor. So black women make them pay you for what you do. (laughs) (laughs) I think that people say this in my industry a lot when George Floyd was murdered, eyes opened. It shouldn't have taken that, but it's the truth. And so that's when a lot of organizations wanted to actually invest in DEI. They didn't want to make it side desk job anymore. They actually wanted to compensate so they could say they did and so that somebody could be dedicated to it. So I would say it was really by chance. It was, I was volunteering and it came from a passion, a place of passion, but then it turned into, no, I deserve to be paid for this. And my knowledge is valuable. Now, where did you get that fierceness from? (laughs) I mean, we are trained and you're younger than I am, but we were conditioned and I'm going to say trained to be there for others from a humble position. This is our ministry. This is our calling. This is our purpose. And how did you learn that? Because I just want to get inside of your head so that women can understand that it is okay to charge for your worth, Mm -hmm. right? To charge for your intellectual property. Mm -hmm. What? Okay, let's go back to your mom and dad. How did they teach you growing up that you are worthy to, for all the things, uh, your dreams, for all of those things that you want in your life? You know, I would say my dad was really an entrepreneur, Like, even though he, I told you where where his career started, he had this amazing background in law enforcement, which we should talk about because that also led me to some of the things that I see is is wrong in our system. But he always had something else. Like, I just remember he'd come home and be like, I want to do this and I'm going to do that. He kept this consistent thing because feeding the family was important. And he wanted to make sure that he was the protector and the provider. And he always did that. But there was always something else. And I remember it would drive my mom crazy, but he had that. And I feel like I got that from him. I was always someone that was like, oh, I can do this. Let me try that on the side. My mom was a teacher. She was a Spanish teacher for over 50 years. And I remember when I was trying to figure it out, like went to college, majored in English, didn't know what I wanted to do, came out bartending, doing all these things. She just kept telling me to be a teacher. Like that was her answer. Just go be a teacher. (laughs) And she had this idea of you do a traditional job, 
you get this 401k, you get your benefits, you do that, and you work there until you're until you're done working. And it wasn't until my indecisiveness and my like uncertainty at a young age led me to leave one job and go to another, leave that job and go to another. It wasn't until then that I realized I was making more each time. Mm-hmm. I have this mentality of like, stay there and don't realize you can level up every time you go somewhere. I made this, now I need to make this. I got these skills, now you need to pay me X. So I kind of like worked the system in that way and realized that the industry is changing. Workforce is changing. And then I think I became fed up as a Black woman. That's really the answer. It's like, I realized that the proof was in my job background, my career background, that I could actually ask for what I deserved based on the skills that I had. But then it was, I am tired of being the only Black person in this room. I'm tired of being the only Black person in this room that still can't sit at the table. Like, I'm going to use my voice and I'm going to to do something about it because if I don't, then when is someone else going to even come through the door? It came from a place of like pain and frustration and feeling like I wasn't seen and honestly mistreated in some organizations. And I've never been quiet. My dad always said I was a social butterfly. That's what I got in trouble for growing up. So I used it to my advantage. I guess that's where it came from. Mm -hmm. So you were able to take who you were and monetize it. Like they say, just monetize who you are. And you took it into the corporate environment. So let's talk about your dad. Let's talk about the work you're doing. Because you've got the inside scoop. I mean, you've worked with the Obama Foundation. You work with Van Jones. Your dad was an officer, a high-level officer. You get to see some things behind the veil that many of us don't get to see. Tell us about those experiences. You know, I grew up in a predominantly Black area. My school was like 90% African-American. I did not understand racism in the way that a lot of people do mm-hmm. until I was a lot older. Saw colorism, which we know is a remnant of it, right? But I never experienced it. And so because of that, I think there were some things that were hidden from me in a way. Like I didn't understand all of these systems that work against us the way that I do now. But the one thing my dad always talked to me about was even though he had made it you know, very high up in law enforcement, he was still a Black man when he walked down the street. And he knew that if he was pulled over, if he couldn't tell them who he was quick enough, that he would have the exact same or could have the exact same outcome as any other Black man. And so I learned that, like, it didn't even matter that he had made it to that point, that, like, at the end of the day, what we talked about before, race still was that thing, right, that could impact his whole life. And so as I got older and started to understand, again, how this country was built and the systems that work against us every single day, I started to really see all of this and become upset that my my father had dedicated his life to this industry, if you will. And it didn't matter that like at the end of the day, he could still walk down the street and be treated horribly because Mm -hmm. of the color of his skin, you know? So I would say that kind of lit a fire under me because it's like, how are we fixing this? Right. (laughs) You know, and the organization that I work for, you mentioned Van, it was founded by Van. And one of the things that we're most proud of is the First Step Act, uh, where we freed over 25,000 people from prison. But just looking at that system, right, the prison system, crack versus cocaine, for example, 
right? Like why is one sentencing higher than another when it's really Crack versus opioids. Why is this treated as an illness and this is treated as a crime? Exactly. So just like noticing all of these things, like I told you, my father, you know, is from Gary. And if you go to Gary now, it's one of the saddest places I've ever been. Mm. But it's like, there's no, there's one grocery store. The hospitals are horrible. The schools have pretty much all closed down. Like they're completely abandoned. Houses abandoned. It's like, there's no way you don't see all of these different systems working together. We're talking education. We're talking food. What happens when you don't have the right schools? Where do you end up? We know the prison, the school to prison pipeline, right? So it's like you look at communities like that and you actually see it at play. And so I think my father's career, the things that like you said that I've I've done just in, in my own career, the places that my family are from and that I'm from, all of that put together showed me really where I needed to be. And not only that with the Black community, but you also have a mother who's Puerto Rican. So you get to see the effects of immigration and what, you know, how Puerto Rico is not being helped properly. And, you know, when people are coming into this country, what they're walking into and what they're and what they're walking away from. So you have a very broad spectrum of things running in your head (laughs) of all of the injustices. Now, you are a freedom fighter for many people. Who's fighting for you and who's the tribe that's protecting you in this fight? Black women. <laughs> it's the truth. Black women. And bla- and I won't discount Black men. Like I have some, some great Black men in my life and I recognize what this country does to them as well. I don't want to, you know, leave that out. But at the end of the day, who speaks up is Black women. There are some, you know, amazing friends and mentors and sisters and coworkers that over the years, I realize it's us. It's always us. And if it wasn't for those women, I don't know if I would have the understanding I have, have the direction I have, feel the support that I have. And so I'm able to like pour out because I've been poured in Mm -hmm. by them. That's a beautiful thing. I don't know how we do what we do. (laughs) Sometimes I think we really are magic because I don't know as much as we have to deal with in our own lives. We still, if a girlfriend calls, we stop the world. What do you need? And we figure it out really quickly. Now, I read, I was doing some research for school and I read an article in the Yale Medical College. And it said that Black women specifically are left out of medical studies because of weathering due to racism. And it literally stopped me in my tracks and I had to close my computer to absorb what it is saying. You do a lot of work in corporate America. Tell us about the environments that Black women are working in, how it is impacting Black women specifically, and what can really be done to change those environments. Because there's no reason that we're aging out early of life because of the racial injustices that we live in every day. Yeah. I mean, when we look at like equal payday, which, you know, there are several throughout the year, we there's uh, men versus women. But if you look, there's like a day for Black women specifically, Black people specifically. And just the gaps, again, it's us, right, that it, we're affected the most in corporate America. And so when you see that data and you know that, then that should lead you to believe a few things, right? Like we're probably working the hardest, getting paid the least. We know that we're the most educated. Black women are the most educated demographic 
in this country, yet we're, we get paid significantly less than our white female counterparts and especially white male counterparts, right? So it's like, we're working for less than what we deserve. Making less than what we deserve means that we're able to get less than what we deserve. That's inclusive of healthcare, mental and physical. That's inclusive of living environments, food, all of those things that we talked about before, systems that come together are at play in corporate America. Okay. And what that can do to your mind, first and foremost, let alone your body, like I think it's it's almost self-explanatory, just thinking of like what you have to do every day. And you talked about us as Black women, all that we carry even outside of work. So we're talking about the mothers and the grandmothers and the sisters and right. Like we are super women to most people. And we've been trained to believe that that's okay. It's acceptable. That's who we should be. And we go to work and we, we do the same exact thing that everyone else does with those expectations outside of that door. So, I mean, I would say that I see that at play all of the time. Look up the top 100 CEOs in the country. Find me a black woman. Right. Right. So, <laughs> Right. What does that tell you? But yet we're the most educated. Mm -hmm. The imbalance is really when you look at the numbers, the imbalance is just crazy, just crazy. And there's always a black woman who's fueling the inside of a corporate environment. But and here's the thing that people don't realize. I always tell people just do the numbers. If you're making a hundred thousand dollars less than your counterpart over five years, that's five hundred thousand dollars missing out of your savings, the opportunities for your families, the opportunities for self-care, therapy, all of the things. Think about what you can pay for, for with $500,000 in five years. Mm -hmm. So that's what unequal pay does. It takes away your future. Exactly. And yeah, so that's one of the things. So in that, all of the injustice that you work in, what are some of your self-care practices? Because I don't know how your brain turns off because I've done social justice work and your brain just is always fired up for finding a solution and hearing a problem and it's triggering mentally, physically, and spiritually. So what do you do to just like breathe? <laughs> so I will say I do some of the like basic things that you think of when it comes to self-care, which is I'm gonna get my hair done, I'm gonna get my nails done, I'm gonna get my massages <laughs> And I'm going to do that unapologetically. Like my mother, I remember growing up and she would say, the thing that I do for myself is I get my hair done. She would go every week. And I used to be like, it looks fine. Like you don't even need to go this week. And she's like, no, because I work hard. What you're not going to do is tell me what I can do for myself when I do for everyone else. She taught me that. So I make sure that those things, like they're non-negotiables for me. If I'm going to do everything for everyone else, I'm going to do this for me. I had a mentor tell me once, and I share this quite often, to always have a hobby because mm. black women don't know how to have hobbies. And I was like, what you mean? Like we all have hobbies. And, and she said, no, black women specifically, black people, but black women specifically always try to monetize the things they enjoy. Mm. And I had, I'd never thought about it. She's like, think about it. The, the difference that you'll tend to see between us and, and white women is white women will find the yoga, the Pilates, the things that they like, right? They'll go do that and mm -hmm. they won't, try to make a business out of it. We will be like, oh, I'm good at this. I like this. How can I make money doing this? Mm. It's so true because there's so many things that I've fallen in love with over the years. Back to what we talked about earlier that I've been, <laughs> let me create a business. <laughs> Not realizing what that's actually doing. 
Like, I'm not saying not to have side hustles. I'm not telling listeners not to find the things that they're passionate about and make businesses out of them. But there's got to be something or a couple things that you keep for yourself that don't become a stressor. And unfortunately, Uh money, it's a stressor. That's a good way to put it, because once a business, having a business, as you know, is a stressor. (laughs) You might love it. It might give you all the change you need in your pocket, but it is a problem. Uh, you you made me think about uh, Michelle Obama and her knitting. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're just gonna sit up and make scarves and like really? <laughs> and people are like, when are you gonna sell it? She's like, this is just for me. This is just for me. And you know, it's very true that you said that having a hobby. It, my best friend and I, we start we do adult coloring. She does it more than I do, but just the idea of sitting there coloring. It just takes your brain away from everything. You don't think about anything but the colors, the next step and the next step. And it's a meditative process, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a beautiful thing. So I'm glad that what is your hobby? Speaking of. So the interesting thing is I actually really do love cooking. I love to cook. And even though that is something that I do for like my family and my kids, and it's it for me is a love language. Like I speak love through the kitchen. What I realized is at one point years ago, I started to get really good at like making these cupcakes and I started selling them. (laughs) And once I started doing that, I was like, oh, I don't like this anymore. I didn't want to do, I didn't want to cook as much. Like it took the joy out of it. I took that back. Like when I feel like I'm going to do it and I enjoy it. For me, it's therapeutic. Mm -hmm. I've always loved it. And it's okay that that's my thing, but I make sure that it's on my terms. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that is, and then definitely travel. Mm -hmm. I love to travel. My, my partner and I travel all the time and that's like my thing. And I've gotten really good at saying I'm going to be off for these trips that I'm taking. Cause now when you work remote, you know, you can take work everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So getting actually good at saying, no, I'm going to take this day off. So you have no expectation of me while I'm off is like something that took work, but it's something I do now. I love to travel (laughs) Just (laughs) just to get, I mean, just sometimes just going on the other side of town. I live in St. Louis. So I'm right by the river. Sometimes just going to the other side to sit on the river is escape enough for me. Now you are a black woman, an Afro Latina woman. And one thing I know about us is activism is in our DNA and all children are our children. Is that how you got involved with the foster care system? Yeah, I always wanted to adopt. Did not know how I was going to. Didn't know when, didn't know who, none of that. But I have a best friend who is adopted. And so I grew up with her and her telling me her story. It always intrigues me to see she has four siblings that are older than her. Five, actually, siblings that are older than her. She's the baby. And the dynamic, like seeing that they look alike, like that nature versus nurture, hearing the memories that she had from when she was in foster care, just like there were so many things that I was like, man, if I could do that for someone, I would love to. So ended up, you know, here in Texas, deciding to become licensed for foster care with the intention of adopting one child. At the time, that was what that's what I said. I ended up fostering a total of seven kids over time, adopted three of those seven. (laughs) Because when you get into (laughs) the system, it's very hard for you to be like, no, 
fall in love with those kids. It's hard. You have to accept that you're actually going to grieve losing them if they do go back to their families or if you don't end up being their forever home. But what I'll never forget when I got licensed, the agency said to me was, there's a misconception that there are more Black kids in the system than white kids. The truth is there are more white kids that enter the system, but they get adopted. Ours just stay in. So it looks like there's more of us. So then that tells me, oh, then I'm needed. Like this is something that I can actually assist with. So when I got licensed, I required that the the children be of color. That was my requirement. Not that all kids don't need homes, they do. But I wanted to do something for kids that look like me. And I realized that there are a lot of Black people that just don't know the needs of the foster care system, don't know they can, don't know it's not as difficult as people make it seem in terms of getting licensed and and opening your home up, don't know that there are options and how you can assist. You don't have to adopt. You don't even have to foster. There are still things that you can do to help our kids. So it became a passion of mine, not only to do it myself, but to make sure that people know that it's something that's needed. These kids didn't choose to be here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how many people have gone through the foster care system that as adults, you have no idea that that's their journey because most people don't talk about it because there is such a stigma around it. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure for the kids, there's a lot of shame around it and the emotions that they have to deal with personally. So who wants to talk about their traumas? But it's beautiful that you were able to get them at a young age and they will be able to be raised by your love and know your parents and all of those things. So that's a beautiful thing. And it's very admirable for a young person to say, this is what I'm going to do and to actually do it. Do you still foster? I don't. I do not foster. I'm pregnant now, too. That's the glow that you were talking about. So I don't, I closed my doors. Like I said, I adopted a total of three. Uh, my partner has a daughter as well. So this makes five for us. Other brides, you probably would have been like Josephine Baker and had 13 yeah. children. <laughs> I will say, I have said that if I were ever to open my doors again, it would be to potentially adopt an older child. Because I did adopt all of my kids under the age of three. There are so many kids that are older that are like 16, 17 years old that are about to age out, which just means that they will have been in the system and never found a family. So when they, if they go to school or they go wherever, they have no one to come back home to. That interests me. And so I've thought about, you know, like once my kids are older or or maybe even gone, Mm -hmm. adopting a teenager. That would be amazing. My cousin always said, I'm going to adopt 17 and a half year olds, (laughs) get them into college and let them know that they have a home. I said, well, go for it. Now, what do you, with all that you know about the world, because Unfortunately, you don't get to take the blue pill. (laughs) You get to see all of the things. What do you share with them or what do you plan on sharing with them about the world so that they can still be children, but be aware of what's going on? You know, I am very open with them. So we have conversations. They know that they're adopted. We have conversations about that. I've let them know that, you know, families can be chosen. They're not necessarily like what you're born into. Blood doesn't necessarily make you family. And I've always tried to make them feel like I wanted you. There is a difference sometimes, right? Like with pregnancy versus I like actively was looking. I wanted you. I asked, I signed a paper, (laughs) like you were wanted, right? And I, I try to like make sure they know that. But because we have had to have these very open conversations about their origin and just their biological family, et cetera, 
I think that we have this kind of understanding of being able to have some pretty adult conversations, even at the, at the age of eight. So I talk to them about the world, right? And in the best ways that I can. I'm in Texas. They tried to get rid of what they call critical race theory, which is nothing but the truth, right? So Girl. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the mother that's like writing the teachers, like, I need to know what Black history you're teaching, mm-hmm. um, specifically all year, but specifically in February. I, I want to know the plan because now I have to supplement it. Right. So like when they come home and they tell me what they learned, I'm correcting it and I'm telling them, go back to that school and you let them know your mom said, (laughs) and I don't care if they're upset because you're going to know the truth in this house. So they at a young age are very aware that there are these injustices in society. I didn't share this, but when I was in high school, I think one of the first things that I encountered that at the time I did not recognize was wrong was I had a history teacher that was a, a white man. He was in his early 20s. So he was like fresh out of college, the cool teacher that everybody wanted. He would do these reenactments of history to try to make us feel like we were there, right? We loved him till it came to slavery. And he did that reenactment. He tied us together, played sounds of the water like we were on a slave ship, chased us around the school. This is high school, chased us around the school with the top hat. And he was the master and we were the slaves. And at the time, as a what 16 year old girl, I didn't see that there was a problem there mm-hmm. because I had been made to feel comfortable by this person because I was in an environment with all black children and a, a lot of black staff. It took a black en- English teacher who saw it to stop it and take it to the board. None of us would have said anything. And so that showed me that you have to have these conversations because kids really are impressionable. They don't know what they don't know. And I think because I grew up in this safe place that my parents, while they taught me some things, they didn't think that there were things that were going to be happening at this school with these Black people, majority, right? So I want to make sure that the things I don't see when I'm not there, my kids know what to look for. (laughs) So, And that's true because my mother had, like like my family, we learned all of, like, like, I think I learned too much. (laughs) I'm mad all the time. But I remember Anheuser-Busch did a series of African kings and queens. Mm-hmm. And it was a poster series. So my mother had them all over the walls. And she said, I want you to know you were never a slave. Mm. This is what you were. So she taught us as young kids that slavery is not where our story began. And I think that that really had a big impact on me of not having that, carrying that burden, because I knew that's not where my story started. So I do agree that. You got to start them young and you can't trust these schools. <laughs> oh, you can't. Because they're still teaching uh, the, the Christopher Columbus story that is not true. <laughs> no, I have videos on my Instagram every year on what they want us to call Christopher Columbus Day, which is Indigenous Peoples Day. Mm-hmm. Kids and I have our own lesson. And I wherever we go that day, there's a website where you can see what land you're on, Indigenous land. It tells you the tribe name and the land. And we pull it up and we talk about it so that they understand we don't honor Christopher Columbus. Here's why. <laughs> but this is what we do acknowledge. That's beautiful. Now you do work with dream.org, mm-hmm. but you also have your own company, Diversified. Mm-hmm. How did the journey of starting your own company begin? And tell me about the work that you all do. So Diversified DEI Consulting. So we consult with organizations and individuals all over the um, U.S. I actually was consulting Dream.org 
and ended up taking a role with them through consulting. I was helping them find someone to take my position and it didn't work out. And one day I made a comment where I was like, hey, you should hire me. And then they called me two weeks later, like, were you serious? (laughs) We would love to. So, and at the time I was leading DEI for a tech company here in Austin, Texas. So I ended up taking the role because for me, it felt like I can do again, what I would do for free. Like this organization is fighting for what I fight for every day, like in my own life and I can take business to it. So it just made sense for me, but DEI consulting, it's something that I'm able to do on my own terms. And I like that because I can meet a client, a company and decide I'm not working with you because you will do me more harm. Mm. Real, Right. Like it is, it's my decision. I don't take on everyone because if it's going to harm me more then why am I doing it? So that's the thing about having my own business that I enjoy. I can say no. And I can also, you know, decide when too much is, is too much just based on all the other things that I have on my plate. So, but it, again, it started through personal experience through saying, I keep doing this for free. People call me and ask me questions. I'm consulting anyway. Right. Like, why am I doing this and not actually benefiting from it? Plus, it's not just me benefiting. If you're paying me for this, you know, service or for this training or for this coaching, then I have a program and a process that I'm taking the time to either build for you or implement for you. And it's going to make the difference. So that's kind of how all of that, all of that works. So when you started your company, did you get mentorship or did you just know what to do when you walked into sign up for your name and all the things? Yeah. So my business partner, she is amazing in all things that. Mm -hmm. So I actually partnered with someone that like, when it comes to the operations and the business aspect, like she's got it. I had more of the DEI specific knowledge, whereas she had more of the like organizational setup operations and things like that. She actually is in media too. She worked for NBC before and works for CBS now. Mm-hmm. So our worlds, it's like we we had the perfect compliments. So we were able to kind of come together and she still handles a lot of that. I, I handle a lot of the curation of the trainings and the, like I said, implementation and the HR side of things. That's what I'm in. So I'm able to like do the policy revisions and, and things like that. They always say that women don't get, Black women don't get along, but clearly you all are defying that myth. (laughs) Well, ironically, my best friend is my business partner. So we are defying that. (laughs) You all know all the secrets. We We went to high school together. We've been best friends for over 20 years. So. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. I just talked to two girls who were best friends. They own a crystal mine company. Mm. But they started off as best friends and they became business partners. And it's the, they said it's been the best thing for them. Now, with some of the hot topics that are happening, not just hot topics, they're life-changing events. Mm-hmm. Affirmative action has been struck down by the Supreme Court. With the, your work being in that area, how is it impacting your work? And what are you seeing on the front of DEI because of this decision? I will say, I don't think I am seeing anything immediately. So right now, it's not something that I'm seeing impact. I think the concern is what will happen over time. And I think that some of the things that could potentially happen, we won't know until we're we're actually able to see it and, and find the data and do the case studies. And I think college is the first thing that people are thinking of is how is this going to in, impact admissions? 
that have already been something that we should have been looking at. <laughs> um, and so I think that's going to be the biggest the biggest case. It's going to take um, not just advocacy at the legal level, because now there's going to be people that are lobbying, right, for whatever they can for on the state level or, what you know, whatever they're able to do to try to put something in place to protect some of the things that could be affected. It's going to take advocacy from parents. It's going to take advocacy from alumni and from communities with schools specifically to make sure that the change does not impact us negatively. They took it away. We know why and we know who. <laughs> so it's not a big surprise. If you ask me, that goes to another problem. But like, how Girl, do listen, feel? let me say this. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like if I could resurrect John Lewis right now, like I really need his energy to because after the, the decision came out, I think I was angry for like three weeks, just like pure rage because the like the kids say the audacity <laughs> Just the, and I know we're both going to be polite, but the audacity of that lead up to just floored me mm-hmm. because of so much work that was done to make it happen. It wasn't just like a fluke decision. This was decades of work that people literally died for, just for a piece of equality, because mm-hmm. we know it's not true equality. Yeah. But I am enjoying seeing. The college is saying we're going to get rid of the legacy yeah. admissions because that's the real problem. We're not the problem. And the other piece that upsets me is the, the fearless fun. I can't remember the, the girl's name. I think it's a- Adrian Simone. Mm-hmm. She's a VC person who funds black and brown women's businesses. The same person is now going after her because he says that her company is discriminates. I'm like, against who? <laughs> so I'm seeing this. And and you know, it's always something behind the veil that's going on. There's a puppet master hat that we're not going to go into that. But how can people remain aware and what can they do in the spaces that they're in to ensure that these pr- programs continue? Because they are necessary. Yeah, I, I want to say this because you said something about the behind the veil. I think people have to realize that there are so many stones that have been overturned and uncovered in the last few years. Not that we didn't know racism and inequality and all of these injustices existed, but I think that we've been learning in a new way, Mm -hmm. just how deeply they are rooted, where they fall. And I think that awareness scares people and the people in power, which is why they're getting rid of things like affirmative action, which to some didn't benefit in the way that it should have or could have, right? Like, was there benefit? Sure. But I think there are a lot of things that were put into place that were put there to look pretty and actually not solve the problem. But now that people are like, wait a minute, I see this thing and now I'm going to do something about it. Now they're trying to get rid of anything that could help. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I see it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, now that they know, we really got to get rid of this now because they're going to pay attention to it. So I think the local level 
is where we have to make impacts because we see what's happening nationally. So to to answer your question, wherever you are, like there's a lot of people that feel like I'm not somebody that's going to go marching in the street. I don't understand politics. How do I lobby? Like, I don't know these different things that I feel like could be beneficial. I'm telling you that all of this stuff is at play and so intertwined that it doesn't matter where you are. There's something that can be done. I don't care what industry you're in. I don't care what neighborhood you live in. I don't care what school you went to. It's there. Find it and figure out how to to speak up for it. So if it is, you know, in in your organization, let's say start there. Who is it that's not being heard? Who is it that's not being seen? How are people admitted into or um, found, right? Like what search engines, what does recruiting look like? Like there are so many questions that you can ask just wherever you are and figure out. What are some of the questions that people should ask? Because I think that's a big problem is, People don't know what to ask because they don't know what they're looking for. They know there's a problem, but they don't know who to to ask the problem to or what questions to ask. Who should they talk to and what should they ask? So if we're talking about from the workplace, the first thing that I would do is ask for a copy of anything written, because a lot of times you can actually find where there's holes right there. So that's uh, employee handbooks and policies and procedures and the things that you sign when you start as an employee, how they determine review processes and raises and promotions, all of that. Like I would actually look at what they've got written and find where there might be things that affect certain demographics in ways that doesn't affect others, because that's one thing that you can actually do. And then you know who to go to. It's your management, it's your executive leadership, it's your HRs. A lot of times the people at the top are the people that you have to ask the questions to, but figuring out where the problems specifically are in your organization is the first step. So you can do that without causing a lot of ruckus because you have title to those things, right? So find those areas. You know, if you interviewed to be a part of whatever organization you're in, how did that process go? What were the questions that were asked to you? What were the things that you felt like were fair and and aren't fair? Since then, if you're a part of a process, what differences have you seen in that process with different candidates? Like there are things that you can just start to train your mind to pay attention to. And once you do that, then you figure out how you can ask the question or change it or challenge it into who, just depending on what it is. And I would say that's more like a, a work thing. And it can be similar to education as well, because all organizations have something along those lines. From a community standpoint, start looking at neighborhoods, redlining, right? Like we know that that's a real thing. Access, where are certain businesses and why? How do they get there? Like you just have to train your mind to think about who's here, who's not here, why and how. Mm -hmm. Whose voice is being heard, whose isn't? Whose voice is being threatened to be erased? Like there are things that you can just constantly ask yourself in the world that will help you to see where the holes are. Because this is the chess game that people are playing. And the things that we're seeing now were decided 20, 30, 40 years ago. (laughs) I tell people, this didn't just happen. This has been on the books for years. You're just finally seeing the results. But it started with the grocery store leaving. It started with the schools getting less funded. It started with less teachers in the schools. It started with the social programs like music leaving the schools, anything that helped develop a full child. It started with these standardized tests in the schools. 
those are the places where it started. And now we're seeing the results of all of that. When people are saying, our kids can't read. Well, why can't they read? <laughs> why doesn't the library have books in it? Yeah. So anyway, I digress. <laughs> we can talk about this forever. But I have to ask you before we go, the very most important question of the day mm. is, is your nursery ready to go? It is not. <laughs> My nursery is not ready and I am okay with that. I'm not going to pressure myself. It's going to be all right. Realistically, the baby's going to be sleeping in our room next to the bed for some months. So I'm not going to stress myself out. My mother is going to come and when she's here, she can stress herself out (laughs) and help me with that. You know, we actually moved a few months ago. We moved in May and to a new house and we found out that I was pregnant like shortly after moving so we were already transitioning and decided where what was going to go where and mm-hmm. now the guest room is not going to be a guest room <laughs> <laughs> so you know there's still so much at the end of the day I just want a healthy baby and we'll figure the rest out <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we all slept on the floor at one point in time <laughs> We have all these fancy things (laughs) and we turned out okay. I just want to tell you, this has been a pleasure. I'm so happy that we've had this conversation. You have given our listeners so much information to digest and diversity, equity, inclusion is very important because we deserve what we deserve the same things everybody else deserves. And that's all it is. Mm -hmm. You know, people want to put this as a big, huge thing. It's just about equality, equity, and the understanding as Black women that we deserve to get paid the same thing that Josh does. We deserve to have a great life, great savings, and great experiences. So thank you for your insights. It has been a pleasure. And my final question is that I ask everybody is what is your Afro-Latin magic superpower? What is my superpower? So this is so off topic but I am very into astrology (laughs) and I tend to either guess signs or if I do just get the information like it helps me navigate relationships Mm -hmm. like I literally like at work I figure out what people's signs are and I know how to interact based off of them so I would say I got a little bit of like a psychic ability but it's because of my understanding (laughs) I tell people I'm I'm not woo-woo, but I'm woo-ish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So what's my sign? Have you figured it out? I haven't figured out your sign. Okay. Are you an air sign? Mm-mm. No. Okay. I don't know. I don't know it. I haven't spent the But you know, time. it's interesting you say that because I tell people, no, I wasn't, I was never an air sign. You might have it in your chart. Yes. I might have it in my chart, but I was a 10 month baby. So I should have been a water sign, but I'm a, a fire sign. So I always confuse people on what my sign is because I'm a, like a whole lot of things. <laughs> that could, yeah, it's hard to guess cusp, but I can almost guarantee you you've got air somewhere. We just have to pull your chart. Oh, you're like serious. Let's pull your chart. <laughs> yeah, it's you your birthday. And if you have your, your time, that will help with your rising. But everything else you can get from your birthday. And I bet you, you have air in there somewhere. Well, I will have to check my chart. <laughs> Let me know. Well, this has been a pleasure and I can't wait for everybody to hear this conversation. You are a delight. You're full of information and I'm so happy that you were glowing 
and full of life and life has not brought you down and you are still passionate about your mission and good luck with all the things that happen in your future. Thank you. (laughs) Sending you light and blessings. And thank you again for joining the Black Women Amplified podcast. Thank you. I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Black Women Amplified. We hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to subscribe and log on to blackwomenamplified.com for more information. Keep shining. Keep shining.